Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Father Glenn uh, asked me to talk kind of about the gospel from a personal perspective. It's kind of like, what is the gospel? What is the gospel for me? What has it done to change my life? Why am I still a Christian? So, um, that's what I'm going to be going through this morning. And I'm really going to talk mostly about the last four or five years of my life, because I would say that's been the most pivotal point for me in my walk with the Lord. And I hope that it's, I hope that it's encouraging to you. Um, the word gospel basically means, you know, as most of us know, good news or a good story. And I think we get away from the simplicity of what the gospel is often. Uh, it's, it's something that you spend the rest of your life understanding, but at the same time, it's not something that should be overcomplicated. Um, about four years ago, um, I had a series of God-appointed disappointments. Um, I was coming off of a good year where I was getting better at my job, having a great time with friends, life was going really well. And then 2015 rolled around, and it felt like everything just crashed and burned one thing after another in sequence. Um, money was tight. I had a job offer for something that was the kind of work I had been looking for. And it pretty much been told the job was mine. And then the next thing I heard was it had been given to someone else. <laughs> um, I had been trying for years to go to India on a mission trip where I had felt called since I was 14. And that one also fell apart. The time that I was supposed to be going, we were told that we had to be out of our apartment and find a new place to live and move everything. And it was not doable. Uh, I tried to join a missions group. It was the kind of mission work that I'd been looking for around Birmingham. And for some reason, that door was just closed. They would not They would never get back in touch with me. I never could get contacted. Just attempt after attempt went absolutely nowhere. I um, got really excited about a relationship with a girl that I thought was going to take off. And then it crashed. And it was devastating. And it was, uh, and also that year my health started having serious problems. I started having major back pain and major stomach problems. Um, you know, right now I'm about 195. The, after the start of all this, I got as low as 135 pounds. So it was 60 pounds less than this. And it was just like, okay, my finances, and I was even having hurtful times in my friendships. And it was like, okay, my relationships are falling apart. I'm still single. I didn't get a job. I thought I didn't get to go on a missions trip. My money's tight. My health is declining. I just, it was one thing after another where I felt like, okay, it feels like God's done with me. I just keep running into disappointment. I open doors and I turn the knob to find that it's closed, that it's locked all the time. So, um, but I was determined, kind of out of my own willpower, that I was going to seek the Lord through it, and I was going to hang in there. Um, I was thanking him for those disappointments, but at the same time, I was struggling greatly with it emotionally. And I was determined, at one point, I was like, okay, all of these things are not coming to pass, I feel like I'm just going to have to force it to happen. I'm just going to have to take matter into my own hands. 
go past what feels peaceful and what feels right and just make it happen and because those were my heart's desires and I came across this scripture so turn with me to first um, Samuel chapter 8 and this passage here um, hit me very very hard when I was praying about all of these things and uh, one thing I'm doing is going through some of the scriptures that the Lord used to speak with me in these really pivotal moments. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are going to do to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Over the next several scriptures, Samuel warns them, it's like, God is your king. God is perfect. God is your righteous, loving father. But you want a faulty, imperfect, sinful human king to rule over you. And here's what he's going to do. And he goes through this long list of all of the things. He said, the king you appoint is going to run your lives. He's going to take possession of your lands and your crops and your sons. He's going to draft them into the military. You're going to have to do whatever this king wants. You are going to be submitted to him, and he is not God. And the Israelites are like, we don't care. We want a king. It's too hard to have God as our king. We want a human king like the other nations have. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me when I read this. It just hit me really, really hard. The Lord was saying, do not seek that which I have not seen fit to give you. Because one of the worst things that can happen in your Christian life is like when a kid is keeps begging their parents for something. And they won't shut up about it. They just keep coming to you again and get there. I want this, I want this. And the parent gets so tired that the parent says, sure, fine. If that's what you want, go do it. See what happens. This is essentially what God is doing to the Israelites. It's like, okay, you want a king more than you want me. Great. Enjoy what you get. Saul, who's, you know, one of the worst kings, one of the most tragic figures of the Bible, is who comes into play next as a result of this. So I felt like the Lord was warning me, don't pursue the desires of your heart beyond where I am willing. The um, During this time, or it was during the summer, I remember one day in particular, I was just so heartbroken and so grieving. I like was just trying to think of something that would cheer me up. And the only thing, it was really weird, the only thing that came to mind that I wanted to do was I wanted to go back to the church where I met the Lord when I was six years old. It's out 
beyond Silicaga, probably about an hour and a half from here, down 280 out in the middle of the woods. And uh, so I got in my car one Sunday. I was going to go to a Sunday night service. And I drove out there. It was a beautiful day. It's way on the country, so there's fields and woods and ponds and stuff. It's a gorgeous drive out there. It was a really bright, green, sunny day. And I just listened to music. I listened to worship. I listened to, uh, uh, what's his name, John Denver, just whatever I felt like. And when I got to the church, I found out they weren't having church that night. So I wanted to go see my pastor from when I was this high who baptized me and be like, hey, I'm not a psycho, you know, and uh, no one was there. So I just enjoyed wandering around the building. And uh, there's this really beautiful hill that's behind the church where the cemetery is. And it's really green grass and there's a lot of trees. It's almost like a cemetery in the forest. And it was a gorgeous day to just wander around and enjoy being with the Lord. And the thing that had just been running through my my mind, I thought I was insane, but is this phrase of return to the place of your birth, which I was born in Enterprise, Alabama, which is probably why I like Star Trek so much. But uh, I uh, wanted to go back to Weagufka is the name of it, because that's where I met the Lord. And I don't think I fully realized then that the Lord was trying to get me back to the basics of my simplicity of a relationship with him, of just enjoying knowing and loving the Lord. And um, turn to, we're going to come back to 1 Samuel 8, or at least the principles of it. Let's jump ahead to the New Testament, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. This was another thing around that time, I think that summer, that the Lord spoke to me that uh, really altered my perspective. Verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died out, and it was completely calm. And he said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have... Do you still have no faith? <laughs> I uh, This always troubled me when I was growing up reading this, because I was like, I thought the disciples did what was right. They woke Jesus up. You know, this is real pressing danger. You know, they probably had friends who have drowned. If they're fishermen by career, they're people who have drowned because the boat tipped over in the middle of a storm. And it's like, these are real pressing dangers. They're not just worrying over nothing. But Jesus' point is that he was in the boat with them. Jesus has already proved his control over nature. He's turned water into wine. He's multiplied bread. He's cast demons out. This is not, (laughs) for some reason, of course, in their minds, a storm is too much for Jesus to handle. He can handle little things, little elements, but a storm he can't handle. But the funny thing is that What Jesus wanted out of them was them to let him sleep, not because he's, you know, just because he's tired, but because he wanted them to trust him that they were going to make it to the other side. 
I don't believe Jesus ever had any intention of actually getting up and calming the storm. That was not his first choice. His first choice was for them to be like, okay, this storm's horrible, it's life-threatening, but look who's lying next to us, sound asleep, we'll be fine. And that's kind of when the Lord was speaking to me. We often don't want storms. We think, why do I have to have a storm? But, and, well, Lord, would you calm this storm? Would you take the storm away? God allows us through many storms because he wants us to know that he's in control. And when you come on the other side of the storm, you're going to be fine. In fact, he's going to do in a work in you in the storm that you're going to be better off of because. Uh, as my um, as my health got worse, they started putting me on steroids. And um, I was not sleeping. And it's funny, I was... Uh, I spent more time in prayer and in scripture than at any other point in my life. Because when you're up in the middle of the night, you can't, I didn't feel like reading necessarily. Um, and I couldn't watch TV or listen to music because that would wake me up too much. When you're on steroids, it's just like, you're like a crazy person. And, uh, or at least I am. And so I spent all kinds of hours praying and whatnot, seeking the Lord. But I still sense that there was something greatly missing. I didn't know. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I was like, I'm doing all I need to do. I'm thanking the Lord for all these disappointments, my my health and whatnot. I'm spending a ton of time in prayer and scripture, but something's still very, very wrong here. I had actually gotten to a place, I'm not exaggerating. I stopped reading scripture. I stopped praying because when I sat down to do it, I was so angry, all I wanted to do was cuss and scream at God. I, at that point, I was starting to hate him. Because I did not understand how on earth he could love me the way that I've always been taught, the way I've read and heard my whole life, if all of this I was going through. And don't misunderstand me, I've had a very blessed very easy life. There are people all over the world who would literally kill to have the kind of problems that I have in comparison to their own lives. But all we have to do is look at like the lives of Chef Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade and whatnot to know that you can have the most awesome life. And if your soul is in torment, then yeah, it's living can be very difficult. It can be something that you no longer want to do. I was struggling in my sin, I was struggling with depression, and I was seeking the Lord, and I wasn't seeing things go away. It did not add up. This is not what I've been preached my whole life, it's not what my parents taught me, this is not what I read in this book. Why isn't this adding up to my life? And uh, I remember one night, uh, I was downtown at the Greek Food Festival. And uh, I was hanging out with Nicholas and Tony, and I was so depressed and so disconnected that I wandered off by myself and was looking at the street traffic, thinking to, and I was not, you know, it's kind of funny to think of it now, but at the moment I was really asking Lord, I'm like, Lord, if you love me, you would let a truck ride up on the sidewalk and take me out. It's like, I, the idea that you might ask me to live another 30, 40, 50 years is torture. It feels like, you hate me and just enjoy watching me suffer because I have no joy and I have no peace 
and I've done everything I know to do. So I was just sort of pouring myself out before the Lord, and the thought came to me, go see Bishop Chuck. And I couldn't shake that out of my head. Uh, so I texted Father Glenn that night. I was like, hey, can you give me Bishop Jones' number? I'm going to try to go see him. He said, sure. He's not the greatest in the world at getting back to people. <laughs> so don't be offended if you don't hear from him. Probably the next day I got a message back saying, hey, man, yeah, come on down to Selma. Let's talk. Let's hang out. So I drove down there and met with him, poured my heart and guts out in his office. And uh, I was like, what am I doing wrong? And he said, no, if there's anything that you're doing wrong, it's unbelief. He said, because when things are not adding up the way you want them and expect them to be, you're not giving God a chance to do it his way. So he said, if anything, it's unbelief. And he said, which is a classic line that I hate, I want you to read this book. I can't tell you how many times people have given me books over the years. I get so tired of people saying, I want you to read this book. It will change your life. It changed my life. It'll do the same. You know, we always, we want so badly to help other people with their problems. So we always think that whatever worked for us is going to work for them. I didn't have any energy in the morning until I started eating almonds. And now I feel great. You know, I couldn't expand my chest until I started doing flies. And now look at me, you know. <laughs> I had sinuses until I put organic honey in my green tea. Now I've, I haven't sneezed in three years. <laughs> Read this book. It'll change your life. And I was just like, oh, great, another book. And as I was walking out, the office, I said, Noah, you're going to read that book, right? And I said, yes, yes, I will. And uh, I probably put off ordering that book for <laughs> weeks and uh, when it finally came to the house, I put off reading it for weeks. And then I had one of those days of crippling depression where I was like, I'm so weary. I don't feel like doing anything productive. And I'm too down in the dumps to do anything fun. It was my off day. And I was like, I guess I might as well read this book because I sure as heck can't think of anything else to do. So I read it. It was called Victory in Christ by Charles Trumbull. And it was one of the only times in my life where I've read something that I just tore through because it was speaking to me so strongly. And um, the Lord had obviously directed him that that's what I needed to study. And uh, there are a few key points from there that I want to go over. Um, the first one is this. is that we are always in the presence of God. We have this mythology as Christians, whether we admit it or not, that God, the Holy Spirit, is off in outer space in some distant plane of reality. And if we sing hard enough and we pray hard enough, he's going to come closer and closer and closer. And then when we stop, he goes back. And, uh, you know, I remember in my prayer times, I used to like, I'd be like squeezing, you know, like frowning so hard, like praying so hard, like I was going to bring him closer, like I was straining on the toilet. That's the, that's the closest thing that I can think of. Like, this is going to make God come to me. He's, he's, he's coming, he's getting closer, and now I've lost him. I must have not prayed hard enough. I must have not have been singing loud enough. Otherwise, he's not coming. At this point, the Christian life is not fun. 
scripture was boring. Prayer was annoying. Uh, ministry was exhausting. Doing worship or teaching Bible study was a task. And it's no wonder to me we hear about pastors and ministers going crazy and doing insane things. Because if you're not enjoying the Lord and you're doing ministry, ministry can be a nightmare. And uh, the thing that the Lord taught me was that we are united with Christ. All right, what is the name of the bishop from Georgia who had a Holloway? Bishop Holloway came and taught one night. He said, you know, when I was raised, I was told that you could get saved Sunday morning, lose your salvation Sunday afternoon, and get it back Sunday night. He said the philosophy was like, Jesus is a suit that I wear. And so right now I'm in church. I'm wearing my Jesus suit. Well, I'm going to take off my Jesus suit, and I'm going to go sin. I'm no longer in Christ. And then when I'm done sinning and I repent, I get back into Christ. He said that's the stupidest thing, the most unbiblical thing. You are when you accept Christ into your life, you can't kick him out. My brother will testify that as much as he hated God, we all heard him a few weeks ago, as much as he hated the Lord and ran from him and ignored him and conf- you know confessed that he wasn't real, Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that he was going to do what he wanted to do, no matter how much sinning he was doing, he still heard the Lord speaking to him. He still heard the Lord warning his spirit not to do stuff. He couldn't get rid of him as much as he wanted to and desperately wanted to. When we sin, we're not kicking Christ out of us. He goes where we go. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. That's the power of the blood. That's the power of the cross. Romans says we are united with him in his death through baptism. We are also reunited in his resurrection. Um, Let's actually turn to John chapter 14. We're getting close to the end. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live... You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. (laughs) Judas, uh, well, this is not Judas Iscariot. Another Judas says, but Lord... Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. 
all of this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What Jesus is breaking down in another verse, Jesus says, I'm going so that the Holy Spirit can come to you. The Holy Spirit dwells in us every moment of every day. If you are in a situation, God is in that situation. Your life cannot be separated from Christ once you have received him. The um, Back to the Victory in Christ book, one of the main things, that, the other thing other than the constant, never-ending presence of God is the fact of victory and how it works. Think about it logically. In a battle, one side is victorious, but it's only victorious if the other side surrenders or is destroyed. That's the only way victory is achieved. You cannot live and experience the fullness of the victory of Christ in your life without surrendering. And without surrendering, there's just destruction. Um, you do not have to go there. I'm going to go there because it's only really, really quick. Anytime you're greatly struggling and it feels like your life is falling apart, I definitely recommend reading Job. Because <laughs> whatever you're going through, it's probably not as bad as Job. <laughs> uh, long story short, Job is a righteous man of God. He loves and serves the Lord and obeys him. The devil goes to God and says, I want to ruin his life and get him to curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you can ruin him, do whatever you want, just don't kill him. We'll see what happens. And Job receives on the same day at the same time the news that all of his possessions, his home's been destroyed, all of his cattle and crops are destroyed, his children have been killed in an accident. It's the worst day imaginable ever to anyone. And then he starts having boils on his skin to make everything more miserable. And um, where is it? Verse um, Job 1, chapter verse 20, he says, At this, this is right after he's received all this horrible news, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord, may the name of the Lord be praised. And in Job chapter 2, verse 9, when his wife is urging him to curse God, he says, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job's life is fully surrendered to God. A few months ago, I was in Lee County helping do a little bit of tornado relief work, and I was walking around the wreckage. This poor woman's house was in billions of pieces. 
scattered all over her yard and other people's yards, pieces of her home, her memories wrapped around trees. It was it was hard for I, I felt a couple times like I might faint. It's just something that's so unusual to see that kind of destruction up close. It was really, really heavy. It was hard to do. And uh, she was in terrific spirits and was very thankful and helping us sort through the wreckage of her home and found out she was on the prayer team at Church of the Highlands. And I remember thinking to myself, this is God's best for this woman. God allowed a tornado to destroy her home. It's not her fault. But God allowed it all the same. And God's doing something in her life and in other people's lives who are affected. I don't understand it. I can't add it up in an equation or anything like that. But this is God's plan. This is where God has her right now. And the truth is, if you want to experience the victory of Christ, everything has to be surrendered. That means everything that you love, everything you want, everything you need, everything you hate, and everything you're afraid of has to be surrendered to God. Job lose everything, and he said, it was all God's to begin with. Everything in my life, God has allowed. And if he takes it from me, that's his will, and that's his plan, and I'm his servant. This is the last scripture we're going to look at. John chapter 14. No, we've already been there. Ha! Um, I want the, the last scripture is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Also known as the most terrifying scripture in the whole Bible. Gosh, Lorraine. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Thank you. These are the words. Yeah, yeah. These are the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. A long time, this scripture didn't make any sense to me. It's like, clearly, if someone's prophesying in the name of Jesus, someone's casting out demons, performing miracles, you would think that God's very moving very strongly in their life and yet jesus says i never knew you look at the life of judas it's absolutely you know absolutely tragic and absolutely fascinating Jews, judas most likely performed miracles jesus sent him out with the rest of the 72 to drive out demons and heal the sick and whatever else judas sat there listening to all the same sermons that jesus preached he watched Jesus perform all the same miracles, but that didn't keep him from stealing from the ministry and selling out Jesus like he meant absolutely nothing to him. God uses whatever he can. Just as Father Glenn was going over Samson last week, 
doesn't, you know, God uses what he can to reach people. Just because God is, you know, using someone does not mean that they know the Lord. What Jesus is saying, I never knew you, is where was our relationship? Did you love me? Because these people might be performing miracles and do whatever else. They may be doing it trying to earn God's favor. They may be doing it for self-gain and for popularity. But Jesus is like, did you know me? Did we know each other? Was your life mine? I have no idea who you are. There's nothing more horrifying than thinking after you die, you go to Jesus and Jesus say, and your name is? We read all that from John 14 to talk about how the Lord is always with us and talk about the amazing faith that is required. There's nothing more important in our lives than knowing and loving the Lord. Nothing should come before that or in front of it. And we definitely cannot walk in the victory of Christ without that being our first and greatest priority. But the question is, where does this faith come from? Because every single day we forget these truths. We forget what Christ has done for us. We forget that he's with us. We forget how much he loves us, that he forgives us. We forget all these things every day, usually multiple times a day. So how on earth do we know and love the Lord when our faith is so frail? What did Jesus say about faith? Did he say you have to have a great ton? No, he said faith of a mustard seed. So small that like if I held it up here, you couldn't see it between my two fingers. Jesus said if you have faith that size, that is all that is required. Trust the Lord with your lack of faith. If you're out of faith, Hebrews 12.2 says, God is the author and perfecter. It also says finisher of our faith. God is in charge of your faith and keeping your faith in check. God is there to see your faith finished to the end. Thank the Lord it is not up to us to maintain our faith. If we did, we would know nothing of the Lord. The Lord is the one who initiates and perfects our faith. So if you're running low on faith or you're completely out, awesome. Just trust the Lord with how little or the nothing that you have. The good news is that he is the perfecter and finisher of our faith. The good news is that he loves us and he's always with us every second of every day. The good news is that he made you and knows you top to bottom. The good news is that he loves you and wants what's best for you. The good news is that no matter what horrible thing happens to you or that you go through, he's still with it, still with you, and that's his perfect plan. The good news is that he's gone to prepare a place for us to be with him forever. He's given you everything that is necessary for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter my rest with me, instead of, I don't know who you are. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You are a good, good father. 
we thank you so much for all that you've given us, all you give us every moment and all that you will. We thank you that you're in charge of our faith, not us. We thank you that your nurse, your mercies are new every morning. We thank you. You never fail. You never give up. And we thank you that you live in us and that you're not going anywhere. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.